Welcome to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts. I'm your host, Doug Peters from the Zamboni Company. Today, our guest is Lee Zeidman. Lee is the president of Staples Center, Microsoft Theater, and LA Live. Welcome, Lee. Thanks for having me, Doug. Good to uh, be talking to you today. Well, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to get to chat with you, and I appreciate your time. Uh, Lee, we'd like to talk about uh, your career a little bit and how you got your start in this industry. Could you tell us uh, where that was? What what career? I'm just uh, I'm just uh, I'm just a Zamboni driver. That's all I've been doing for 35, 40 years. <laughs> Actually, um, you know, I was going to be a marriage counselor way back when in college, and um, I determined uh, that I was never going to get married to uh, bias my uh, marriage counseling uh, opinions. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I was uh, playing baseball and football in college, and uh, never really went to class. My uh, grade point average suffered. I lost my scholarships to play baseball and football. And uh, after struggling through five years of uh, psychology to become that marriage counselor, at the end realized that my grade point average was never gonna get me into any kind of graduate school. So uh, I kind of walked over to the recreation department at Cal State Northridge at the time where I was just finishing up my degree in psychology. And I was working at a bowling center in Simi Valley and I asked them if they had anything in commercial recreation. You have to understand that this is way before uh, sports management degrees are were out there. There were no universities offering those type of things. So they kind of put together a program for me uh, in commercial real estate, ski resorts, you know, camping, all that type of stuff. Um, everything that uh, I was really not interested in, I didn't ski and I didn't camp. My first gig was uh, handing out backpacks and tents in the leisure studies office. And I realized very quickly that uh, I did not want to do that. And we had an on-campus pub at Cal State Northridge, and they were looking for somebody to book the entertainment in it and asked me if I was interested. And I said, yes, I'd love to do that. And I started booking concerts in the, uh, in the pub. We called it Wednesday Night Live. It became very successful. And from that, I produced uh, Tuesday Night Comedy, Thursday Night Jazz, and we hosted Monday Night Football. And then we kind of sobered up on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And from there, I built a job at Cal State Northridge overseeing uh, campus events and advising the student groups there. And then from there, uh, my next big move was to UCLA where I was project and events manager for Associated Students UCLA. Uh, I was there during the 84 Olympics. One of my main responsibilities was overseeing a main stage entertainment uh, tent and uh, stage where we booked 120 performances in 30 days right outside the Olympic Village. And I was there six and a half years, and that's where I thought I was going to spend my entire career. My goal was to be the director of uh, operations for the student center. And unfortunately, uh, in year five, I got passed over due to some campus politics, realized that uh, I didn't uh, have a future there at UCLA, and started looking for everything and anything in operations, entertainment, those type of things. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be selected as the Assistant Director of Operations for the University Center at UC Santa Barbara, where my responsibilities allowed me to oversee the 6,000-seat event center on campus, which was at that time called the Thunderdome, famous for the Gaucho uh, UNLV Running Rebel basketball games back in the uh, uh, mid to late 80s. And that was my first big break. From there, um, I was uh, selected as Director of Operations at the Forum, um, which obviously was my biggest break into this uh, big time arena management. And I spent 10 years there. My last two years, uh, I ran the forum under Jeannie Buss. And I was the first person hired for Staples Center uh, in February of 1998. 
and uh, I now oversee Staples Center, Microsoft Theater and LA Live, and I've been here uh, 22 years now. That's incredible. You mentioned that uh, you were working at a bowling alley, is that correct? Yes, I was. A bowling alley out in Simi Valley to where I coordinated the night and daytime leagues, and um, I would leave uh, after my night shifts, and back then you could smoke all you wanted to in bowling alleys. And uh, my college girlfriend at the time would uh, demand that I would take off all that uh, smoke-smelling clothes I was wearing each night before I even came into the apartment. But uh, it was uh, it was my uh, my big foyer into recreation, and uh, you know one of my uh, one of my biggest challenges was spraying uh, the sanitization spray into all those shoes that came back on a nightly basis. That's interesting. I worked at a bowling alley. That was what my career I thought was going to be my career path. Uh, I wanted to be a professional bowler. Uh, that didn't work out because I didn't have the skill level for it. But I worked at a 10-lane bowling alley uh, growing up until my probably early to mid-20s before I went full-time into the ice rink world. Uh, did you ever bowl, Lee? Yes, I bowled quite a bit. We had 24 lanes. Um, I, I Listen, I wanted to be a professional baseball player, but there was not a – and while I was – pretty much all everything in high school, there wasn't a big demand for a banjo hitting 150 pound first baseman as it related to major co major colleges and universities, nor the uh, MLB draft. But uh, I toyed with wanting to bowl more and uh, you know, I bowled quite a bit back then. I was left-handed and kind of looked at myself as a young Earl Weber. I think that's, that's who it was way back then, um, who was one of the big names in the, uh, in the pro bowling leagues. Uh, Earl, Earl Anthony, I think you're referring oh, to. Earl there. Anthony. You're there right, you Earl go. Weber. You know, there, there's a lot of Webbers out there, and there's a lot of Anthony's. But Earl Anthony, thank you for correcting me there. Oh, no problem. And it's interesting because I just recently sold the machine to the number two left-handed bowler of all time that we're hopeful to get on a podcast as well, uh, Mike Alby, who owns an ice, a couple ice rinks back in Indiana and a bowling center. So it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I might be having to fashion myself uh, after you a little bit more, seeing as we have a few things in common. Like, I wore this shirt special for you today. It's a Tommy Bahama that I can remember running into you at, and uh, I think it was Arizona, and you had the exact kind. I said, wow, I've got the same taste that Lee Zyman has. I felt very honored to be wearing something similar to what you have. Well, that's interesting because over the last 222 days, I've worn a suit only one time. I've worn T-shirts, shorts, and flip-flops the entire time. I haven't shaved. I haven't put on any more long pants outside of that suit that one time. And I'm kind of enjoying it, to be honest with you, living here in Venice, California, you know, a block and a half off the beach and a block off the canals. It's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, as, as we uh, are in this uh, pandemic now, uh, as I said, day 222 without hosting an event with fans at Microsoft Theater or Staples Center. That, that's hard to believe, Lee. Can, can you go into a little bit of your involvement with the construction of Staples? Because I think that's the first time that I, I had dealings with you. And maybe let us know and let the listeners know what it was like to work on that project and get it built. Well, first of all, you have to understand we built that project in 18 months, shovel into the ground to opening night, just under a million square feet. That had never been done before. And I believe in any venue 
arena, theater, or or stadium, it's never been matched before either. Um, so it was quite stressful. Um, being the first person hired for Staples Center specific, I was part of the project team, I was part of the construction team, I was part of the design team, and then uh, obviously then I uh, accepted the keys and became the operator of the venue. Prior to that, though, I was working for Genie Bus and the Lakers at the uh, Forum, and I was actually the Lakers representative on the new arena committee to make sure that the Lakers, you know, would be well represented and make sure that some of the things that they wanted in a new venue um, would be uh, uh, would be discussed and considered. And the interesting thing is, you know, back at that time, the last major uh, venue that had been built in downtown Los Angeles was the uh, sports arena back in 1957. And in 67, they built the uh, Forum. So there had never really been anything built in L.A. proper, the city, or L.A. County for a long time. And there was a reason for that. It was tough to get business done in downtown Los Angeles and the county of L.A. And uh, it was quite challenging back then as we were determining where we were going to build Staples Center. As, you know, a lot of people thought we were going to build it on the 29-acre Forum site. And uh, there were a couple other areas in and around downtown. And then we settled on the North Hall at the convention center on a little over nine acres. And uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, cut the deal. And at that time, there was nothing around the convention center except for, to be honest with you, uh, really some unsavory uh, locations, you know, um, dilapidated apartment buildings, um, you know, boarded up uh, offices, um, liquor stores where people would gather on a Friday night with their paycheck. It was not a safe place to be, nor was it a place you wanted to be back in uh, 1998. So there was a lot of cleanup that we needed to do as a related to that. And we worked very closely with our partners uh, from the city of Los Angeles to get that done. Lee, you mentioned a, a bit about what it was like and how difficult it was. Uh, to try to get the deal hammered out. And I kind of remember it. That was a long time ago. I moved here in 87 from Minnesota. And what what part of your job is having to deal with city politics or politicians at, to make sure that everything moves um, smoothly or moves smoothly through the the construction process? And then we can get into a little bit of what you're having to deal with now with COVID. Uh, there's a lot. And and first, before before we move to that topic, you know, it, there was never any guarantee that even though Staples Center was state of the art, a beautiful venue um, and um, opened up on time after 18 months, that people were going to accept it. Uh, you know, you had people going to the forum at that time. They had been going to the forum to see the Lakers and the Kings play for close to 31 years now. Um, that was the only place they ever went. Then you had the Clippers who came from the sports arena who are a late addition, giving us two NBA teams and uh, one NHL team, in addition to the arena football team that played there and the WNBA Sparks. We had five professional teams that played there. And, you know, I used to always joke that, um, you know, we had the, uh, the best rated ice sheet in the NHL for arenas with two NBA teams. Now, you could look at that and say we always had the worst rated ice sheet for arenas with two NBA teams because we were the only arena and still are with two NBA teams in it. That said, I believe it was the success of Staples Center and the fact that we could educate everybody now to come downtown 
And, uh, you know, you have to also understand that the forum is only 330,000 square feet. You could fit two and a half forums inside of Staples Center. So there was a tremendous learning curve for people who lived on the west side who would go to Inglewood and now all of a sudden had to come to downtown. So we had to win everybody over as a related to that um, from the Los Angeles Lakers and the Los Angeles Kings standpoint. The Clippers, they were just more than happy to get out of the sports arena back then and get into a brand new venue and be part of the whole thing. And as I said, arena football was brand new and the WNBA was was a very, a very, very young fledging uh, league as well. So in the very beginning, dealing with politicians on a daily basis was critical and uh, very time consuming because every politician in Los Angeles and Los Angeles County wanted to take credit for A, getting the deal done, B, getting it built on time, and C, making sure that it operated as well as it did. So there were a tremendous amount of people taking credit, some rightfully so, and some I could never understand how they could even start or preference a speech or anything that they were instrumental in what took place in downtown Los Angeles and the building of Staples Center. But I will tell you this, that um, I believe the success, and there are a lot of other people who believe this as well, that due to the success of Staples Center, Los Angeles, specifically downtown, was revitalized by the success of that venue. And hence, Microsoft Theater was born, and really the first, what I would call, urban entertainment district, LLI, was born due to the success of uh, Staples Center. Moving forward, dealing with politicians on a daily basis is huge right now. You know, I'm a big advocate of making sure that you have strong relationships with local politicians, from the mayor to the city council, and especially your local police and local fire, because you're going to need all of them as it relates to getting certain approvals and moving forward. That said, is it time consuming at times? Yes, it is. Is there a lot of red tape to jump through? Yes, it is. Are there promises made that you need to track down and make sure that they get handled and taken care of? Yes, there are. But you know what? Listen, you know, we're in a major, we're in a major urban city, um, one of the top cities in the country, if not internationally. And it's not always easy to get things done. But I think we've had a great track record, not only on our own, but working with the city and the politicians to where um, we've been very successful in getting things pushed through and getting things done in addition to having those great relationships with the men and women of the LA Police Department and the LA Fire Department. You mentioned your involvement with the Lakers, and I'm gonna ask a question about a gentleman who, uh, back when the Lakers were in Minnesota, uh, was the GM behind the scene who passed away uh, just on Sunday. And I don't know if you ever run across him or ran across his name, but he was a, a legend back in Minnesota as a sports, cast, or sports reporter, um, Sid Hartman. Uh, I don't know if that name rings a bell with you or not, but uh, a Minnesota legend as a character, as well as a sports reporter. It does. It does ring a name. I think he was 100 years old when he when he just passed away recently. And, you know, there's a reminder of those Minnesota Laker days on the uh, on the south wall of uh, Staples Center with uh, a banner in the blue powder blue and gold that signifies those uh, five, I think, world championships or titles or NBA titles they won uh, back when they were in Minnesota. Now, I in have fact, fun with the Lakers got the name, you know, from all those well, lakes in Minnesota. Now, I, I will tell you this, I am not a big fan of lakes because I believe that that's where all the dead bodies go. And when they decompose, the minute you walk into those lakes, you're stepping on them. And so you don't really know what's squishing between your toes. I'm more of an ocean guy because when the dead bodies go in the oceans, they get swept out to sea and eaten by sharks. <laughs> swimming swimming with the fishes. Swimming I'm, with the fishes. Kidding, of course. 
<laughs> well, and it's funny because I have a lot of fun with people out here. I've struggled to be a Laker fan, which is sacrilege out here, I know. Um, but the reason I do is because I grew up as a kid liking the Celtics for some reason. And Kevin McHale, who was a Minnesota kid, played for the Celtics. And I don't think you can be a Celtic and a Laker fan. And I always joke that people think it's the abundance of lakes in Southern California that the Lakers got their name from not knowing that the team originated in Minnesota. So uh, well, let me tell interesting you times. Let me tell you something. You can be a Celtic and a Laker fan if you are what I consider myself, a true front runner. If you're a front runner, you never lose. You never have to hear, we'll wait until next year. You never have to say, we'll get them next year. You're never disappointed when the season ends if you're a true front runner. Yeah, unfortunately, I was born in Minnesota, and I'm stuck with being a Minnesota fan. And I just am hopeful that in my lifetime, I will see the Vikings win a Super Bowl. But I know that that's unlikely to happen and certainly not going to happen with the current quarterback they have. Well, let's hope if you sell this podcast that you and I are doing right now, it will generate enough income for you that you can go ahead and buy the Minnesota Timberwolves with <laughs> Kevin McHale, Kevin Garnett, and some of your other Minnesota buddies. Yeah, I think I'm smart enough to know not to own a, a sports franchise, Lee, but uh, I'll have to give that some other consideration. All right. What's it like to oversee one at the before COVID, the one of the busiest, if not the busiest building in the world for entertainment? I mean, obviously, it's very challenging to a certain extent um, that it is time consuming. Um, you know, I try to tell young professionals that are trying to get into this business and, you know, and when I tell them, you know, what part of this business do you want to get into? Do you want to be do you want to be in marketing? Do you want to be in PR? Do you want to work for a team? Do you want to work for a venue? Do you want to work for an association? Do you want to work for an agency? Do you want to be a Zamboni driver? What part of it do you actually want to get into? Um, that said, I tell them that this is an industry that chews up and spits out relationships. You know, there are no weekends or holidays as it relates to what we do, as you know. When you're actually playing, we're actually working. So, you know, there are a lot of 100-hour work weeks. There are a lot of 16 to 18-hour days. You know, there are a lot of times when you're just tired of doing another event after an event after an event. You need to power through that because you need to continue to deliver a great fan experience for the people that are putting down their hard-earned money to come through those doors and to come visit your venue and watch whatever is on the stage, on the ice, or on the basketball court. So the challenges are probably big-time management, making sure that you give your people enough time off so they can spend it with their families, they don't burn themselves out, and that you manage your lifestyle and you balance their lifestyle with a work-life balance. It's something, Lee, my father was the chief engineer for the Met Sports Center back in Bloomington, Minnesota, which was the home to the North Stars uh, from, he was there from 67, 68 when uh, they came into play until about the mid 70s and until the team moved down to Dallas, uh, the, it was the home to the North Stars. So I know what your side of the business is to a degree, certainly not to your level. And I'm thankful that I'm on my side of the business because I don't think I could handle the workload that you put yourself through. Uh, the amount of uh, nights that are spent there and just your dedication uh, to that building, it, it says an awful lot about you as a person and, and how you deal with all of that. 
I'm, you know, the toughest I, thing, the, what, the, not to interrupt you, but I, oh, I no. did. The toughest okay. thing, the toughest thing, you know, I think right now going through this pandemic is I think I'm working harder during the day to a certain extent. Um, even though, listen, let's be realistic. Not everybody works 40 hours, even when they're in the office. There's a lot of time when you go office to office and you kibitz with people or you take a long lunch. So, you know, but I am working smarter, you know, than, than harder to a certain extent. You know, there are a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of go-to calls, a lot of uh, Microsoft team calls. I never did any of these calls before March 12th. And now I'm doing, you know, four, five, six, seven a day. But the one thing that I do miss and the one thing that, that has been, challenging or was challenging in the beginning was adapting to having all these nights off and while you may say well that's great you got all these nights off but in a pandemic there's nowhere to go so it's so it's like you know and then the very beginning there wasn't very much sports to watch because obviously i'm a big sports fan and now there are so much sports to watch although it's tapering a little bit now that that the nba is done at the nhl is done and now you have college football and you now have the, the NFL and now baseball is, is coming to the end with the start of the World Series. So I think the biggest challenge was, you know, geez, I, you know, I was accustomed to doing my meetings during the day and meeting with people and working on uh, various other projects. And then come five o'clock, gearing myself up in event mode and being ready to welcome, you know, 18,000 people on a nightly basis. That was the biggest change that, that I've had to deal with. And, uh, um, do I miss it? You know, I, I'll be honest with you, Doug. I've, I've, for someone in my career, I've, I've probably been fortunate enough to be at 6,500 events throughout my career, um, over 4,000 just at Staples Center. I've probably listened to over 3,500 national anthems. I've seen everything you could potentially see in my business. I've been fortunate enough that I've been with ownership groups and buildings where, where the teams uh, that I've been associated with have uh, played in. Um, nine uh, NBA finals, uh, of which they've won five, um, three Stanley Cup finals, of which they've won two, five WNBA finals, of which they've won three, you know, 20 out of the last 22 Grammys, you know, the Democratic National Convention in 2000, where, as you may recall, Gore and Bush waited 37 days before before they were, uh, one of them was declared a winner, which could happen in this election, you know, coming up November 3rd, who knows? So, you know, I've been very fortunate, you know, and I've had, you know, at Staples Center, the same men and women, my core management team have been with me on average of 16 years now, which is pretty unheard of in this business too. And I attribute that to that, you know, hey, AEG and Staples Center and LA Live are a great company and iconic venues to work at. Um, B, it's Southern California. You can't beat the weather, that's for sure. Um, and C, you know, I have to be somewhat of a decent guy to work for if you're, you're going to continue to stay here that long and actually work with me and for me. So I've been very fortunate, very fortunate to be part of, of, of Southern California and never have to leave my entire career um, in Southern California. I'm going to tell you a quick story about how I got to the forum because, you know, without what I did, we may not be even having this conversation. I was actually interviewing, and a lot of people have heard this story because I've told it a few times, but your listeners may not have heard this story hearing me speak at, at anything, and I'm not sure I've ever shared this with you. But when I was leaving UC Santa Barbara, trying to leave UC Santa Barbara, I was applying for everything and anything that had to do with operations, facility management, uh, booking, concerts, you name it, running venues, anything. 
because I was working for the state of California. My boss at the time at UCSB was never going to leave. I knew that. He's just retired about five years ago. And, you know, the state of California was not a place where you were going to get rich at. And Santa Barbara was very expensive. I got a call from a company called Ogden Facility Management. And as you know, in this business, there are a lot of facility management companies. Right now, there's ASM Global, which is an which is a hybrid of AEG and uh, a private equity firm that owns that. Um, AEG facilities merged with SMG. I am not part of that group, nor are the venues that um, that I operate are part of ASM Global. But um, Ogden was one of those facility management groups back then, and I got a call to come down there. I didn't know what it was. I drove from Santa Barbara to the uh, airport, and two gentlemen interviewed me. They said, um, listen, this job is director of operations at the Forum. Are you interested? And I'm thinking to myself, am I interested? I went to every Laker and King game and concerts growing up here and, and all through college. Of course I'm interested. And I said, how many people are you interviewing? I mean, this was probably a huge pool. And they said, you're the only one we're talking to. If we would have put an ad out in the paper, we would have gotten everybody and anybody that would have ever have, uh, been connected with any kind of venue. And I'm thinking to myself, the only way I don't get this job is I mess it up. 45 minutes later, they said, you know what? Fantastic. We're going to send this on to our senior VP who's flying in from Florida next week. We want you to come back down and meet him. His name was Doug Logan. Um, very active, very iconic in the industry. He is a um, he was the first major league soccer commissioner and done many other positions within the sports and entertainment industry. He comes in, sits down, looks at me, and he goes, "Well, you're one of three people I'm looking at." And I'm going to myself, "Uh oh, how did this go south so quickly?" He goes, "I'm not saying that you're not qualified, but the other two have MBAs, one out of Florida, one out of Arizona, and um, you know you don't." have an MBA. I'm looking for somebody who's going to chart all these sports transactions, these franchise movements, all these type of things with venues and everything of that nature. And I'm thinking, man, this is not going to, this is, I don't even know what I'm going to tell people when I leave here. And after I told everybody, this is my job to lose. So we have a little bit more small talk. He asked me, are you interested in starting out at one of our smaller venues, um, you know, you know, in the Midwest or in the Southeast or anywhere else? And I said, well, I guess it would depend on what the venue is, but I'm really a Southern California guy and I don't really want to leave Southern California. So I guess it would it would be what determined what the job was. A little bit more small talk and says, you know, I'm not saying you're not the guy, but I got two pretty qualified people. But, you know, listen, we're coming to the end of this conversation and I know you're going to get in the car and you're going to uh, you're going to ask yourself, man, I should have asked him this. I should have asked him that. Why didn't I ask him this? So I'm going I'm to ask you, Lee, is there any questions or any question you want to ask me now before we wrap this up and you leave? And uh, this is my message that I give young professionals all the time. Ask questions. It doesn't make a difference who you're with or what level um, the interview you're in. Um, ask questions. And so, yeah, I said, uh, Mr. Logan, I just have one question. I said, it sounds like you're uh, you're looking for a director of finance. And I thought this was an interview for a director of operations. He looks down on my resume, looks back up at me. He goes, oh my gosh, I've been interviewing you for the director of finance for the last uh, 45 minutes. Of course you're qualified. I'll send it to Claire Rothman, the GM of the forum with a recommendation and I'll have her bring you back down there. I left, went back down to the forum next week and boom, hired by Claire on the spot and the rest is history. That's an awesome story. Uh, that That's just... And she would, I, I remembered her name. Unfortunately, I have not been into the office on a work day since February. I went wow. uh, on a couple business trips in late February, early March. And then my wife and I went to Hawaii 
uh, for what was supposed to be three plus weeks and ended up being uh, 12 days. And I've been working from home ever since with a couple of visits in uh, into the office. But Claire's was a name that I wanted to bring up. And uh, is, is she still with us or? Uh, yes, she is. Uh, she's in her late 90s. You know, wow. listen, there was, I was very fortunate enough while in my 10 years at the forum that I was associated with quite quite a few visionaries. Claire Rothman was one. Jerry West was one. Magic Johnson was one. Uh, Dr. Buss was another. Jeannie Buss was another. These people, these people made a mark on my career. I was very fortunate enough to grow up with those people and, and be able to learn from them as I, as I progressed through my career. Well, there's names that come to my mind, and I wish that, uh, that I was able to talk to Richard Zamboni a little bit more uh, to, to ask him a few things. But Fred Corsi comes up that I think he was involved with uh, Long Beach. Rob Collins is a name. Ernie Thompson is a name that goes back with, uh, with a few of the, the old school people. But I, I want to bring up, uh, you, you mentioned Dr. Buss's name. And one of the things that sticks with me, I heard an interview with him, and I think it was uh, Jim Rome or Colin Cowart. Uh, but it stuck with me. He said, I know what I know, but more importantly, I know what I don't know. And to me, what that meant was that he was going to hire people and put them in positions to handle things that he was not an expert at. And I think that's one of the reasons the Lakers were as successful as they were. Is he brought a guy like Jerry Weston who knew talent. Didn't mean that he was giving up the final say on things, but he certainly knew when to turn things over to other people. And, and sometimes I think that's a failing of upper management in a lot of cases that they don't know when to let people do their jobs. I agree. Let me tell you something. Dr. Buss was a true visionary. He brought, he brought Showtime. He brought Hollywood to the NBA. He was the first to introduce um, Senate seats, which are the, I believe, the grandfather of all premium and club seats in arenas and stadiums now. He brought the Laker girls in for entertainment. He made the courtside seating experience one that you had to have. And he was the first, I believe, to really get into naming rights when we did a deal with the Great Western Bank to name it the Great Western Forum. But listen, I, I live by that same philosophy. I don't, you know. I grill my people with a lot of questions and a lot of people get intimidated by that. And a lot of people find myself trying to put them on a, uh, on the defensive to a certain extent. And I tell them you're misreading the entire situation. I'm asking you these questions, not to trip you up or to put you on the defensive. I'm asking you these questions to educate myself. I've forgotten. I can't remember last night's score, let alone what happens in what happened in 2004 at the Staples Center on a Wednesday night Laker game. I don't remember all that stuff. So I need to continually ask questions. And I believe that educates me. And I'm a firm believer that you could teach an old dog new tricks. And I am an old dog in this business. And I'm continually learning new tricks every day. Well, Lee, I think that the people who get the opportunity to work with you, and you said you had yourself as C on your list, and I don't think I would put you as a C. I think the people that get the opportunity to work with you are going to learn a lot. Yes, you may be demanding. Um, yes, you may expect a lot out of people, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that you don't expect anything less from somebody than what you're willing to do. And I know you're putting in the time and the effort. And it's to me, I think people should want to have a boss that's going to teach them things so that when they go down the, the trail of their career, that they're going to have been taught things the right way. I've, you know, I appreciate that. And yes, I've been I've been labeled demanding or I've been labeled tough or I've been labeled I've been labeled um, um, somebody that that um, 
that that um, sometimes asks a lot of questions. And I do that for a few reasons. A, I want to make sure that, first of all, we're all held accountable to somebody. I'm held accountable on a daily basis. And if I don't hold people accountable, then the whole accountability is out the window. And then we're just, we're paddling in the wind, paddling in the water, so to speak, spitting in the wind. So yes, I'm demanding, but I don't demand anything that I wouldn't do myself or that I haven't done myself. I'm very direct. I'm very honest. And I don't know anybody who's ever taken a meeting with me that has ever walked out of that meeting thinking, man, I don't know what I don't know what he wants of me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. I don't know where we're going. That said, I'm also somebody who listens. And my even though I make a lot of decisions, I make a lot of decisions with input. And even if I've made a decision and my people or our people or the people I work with or the people I have the opportunity to work for come to me with different opportunities or different ideas based on a decision I may have made, I'll change that decision if it's a better outcome for all involved. So I have no qualms about that. I don't run it from it's my way or the highway. I look for input. I think that's made me a better person and a better manager and a more effective leader moving forward because people know that they can come into my office and they know that I can be swayed if you've got a better way to do it or you think it's going to be better for the organization or for, for our team or our staff or everything else moving forward. Well, I think that when I dealt with you for business, I was a bit younger than I am now, and <laughs> it was a it was a challenge. But I've always told people when I've talked about you that I admire what you do. I I appreciate the way that you do business because I know where I stand with you. There's other people who will be nice to your face, and then you walk away and then they're talking about you a different way. And I know that's not the case with you. I also can tell people that whenever I've reached out to you in the last 20 plus years, you've always responded back to me. And I appreciate for me being just the position I am in the world, which is just a lowly little Zamboni salesman <laughs> and you being at the level you are, when you respond to me, I that, that, that means the world to me, Lee. And to have somebody of your stature be willing to do that, that says a lot about you as a, as a person. I appreciate that, thank you. And I wouldn't call yourself a lowly Zamboni salesman. There are, there are a tremendous amount of venues, there are a tremendous amount of ice rinks that need those Zambonis. And uh, you guys provide what I believe uh, is the best designed, the most reliable equipment out there as it relates to uh, running ice venues. Well, thank you very much, Lee. We, we greatly appreciate that. Can you tell us a little bit about all of your responsibilities with AEG? And, and clarify for me, because you're not part of the AEG, uh, which became ASM. Did the staples in that complex stay independent on its own as part of AEG? As part of the merger between AEG facilities and uh, Spectacore Management Group, SMG, uh, Mr. Anchus carved out four four uh, venues slash areas. Carved out Los Angeles with Staples Center and LA Live. Carved out Carson with Dignity Health Sports Park. Carved out the O2 in London and that entertainment district. And carved out the Mercedes-Benz uh, uh, Arena and the entertainment district there. We are all not part of ASM Global, um, even though AEG owns 50% of ASM Global. I report directly to Dan Beckerman, our president and CEO of AEG Worldwide. Um, I'm not part of Bob Newman's group, um, but obviously we help them when they need help. I mean, you know, you have to understand it was the Kings that were, was the, the purchase of the Kings that started everything. 
the construction and the success of Staples Center that came next, and then AEG was born, and then everything else followed after that. So we are not part of that. And um, my responsibilities encompass everything from A to Z in the operation of Staples Center on the Microsoft Theater and the LA Live campus, except for the hotels. The hotels do not report into me. Um, there are three entertainment um, venues on that campus that I'm the landlord to. I don't operate them. And there are 17 restaurants, including the 14 screen Regal Cineplex and the Grammy Museum that I'm effectively the landlord and with our real estate division, um, put together and work on the various leases as it relates to those restaurants, as it relates to the Regal Cineplex and the entertainment venues there. I work very closely with a gentleman by the name of Ted Tanner who heads up our real estate division um, when we're putting together the leases and, and putting that in place. So when you think about what does that mean, it's everything from marketing to PR, to booking, to security, to operations, to you name it, um, it all falls um, under uh, my direction, working with uh, close to about 4,000 part-time and full-time people throughout the year. That's amazing. Um, I've had the pleasure of being in your office uh, and to get a purchase order, which was a treat for me uh, a long time ago. You have a, just a couple pictures in your office. How many celebrities have you been photographed with, Lee, over the years? Uh, too many to count, to be honest with you. And, you know, those, those we call those trade shots. Um, and, you know, you'd want to get them taken so you can get them in Polestar or a billboard or, or Sports Business Journal, those type of things. But I actually enjoyed them, not because I was going to get another photo with a celebrity. It was because we were able to say thank you to the artist or thank you to the athlete and present them with a gift. I mean, you know, for coming to our venue or playing in our venue or if I'm holding a championship trophy or I'm shaking the hand of, of, of one of the athletes that I got to know very well. So, yes, there are a lot of photos in my office. There are a lot of opportunities that I've had to be photographed with a lot of celebrities. But, um, you know, listen, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a starstruck kind of guy. You know, obviously, I live in Southern California, Los Angeles, and I see quite a bit of them within my daily before the pandemic and within my daily job because there were a tremendous amount of celebrities and, and entertainers and athletes that would come to the venues. But, um, you know, listen, I'm just a guy that just wants to say, make it safe for you coming into our venues and have a great time. But the one thing that you didn't mention yet is that, that I am very well known for having probably about 16 candy jars in my office, all full of candy. Now, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that candy is when I was working at the Forum back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, Jerry West would always call me and say, hey, come up to my office. I want you to sit here, watch the game. We'll break it down. You and I can hang out for a little bit. Jerry had a couple candy dishes in his office. And so people would walk in take a piece of candy, shoot this with Jerry. And I go, wow, man, if I ever get to be, you know, president of something or running something, I'm going to, I'm going to do that and put some candy dishes in, in my office. And that way people would want to stop and shoot the shit with me. Now, Jerry only had a couple. I have about 16. So I went a little further than Jerry did. And to this day, I'm not sure if people don't wait till I leave the office or if I'm on vacation to take more of the candy than stop in when I'm in there and take one piece of the candy, because it seems like when I'm gone for a, a period of time, those candy jars are always a lot lower than when I left them. So it's always Halloween in your office is what you're telling me. Pretty much, pretty much. And let me tell you something. I, I you know, the interesting thing is in the last 222 days since this, this pandemic is, I've lost probably 12 pounds. Now it's not because, you know, my workout regimen has increased because I used to work out 
four or five days. We have a gym at Staples Center. I'd roll in, work out, um, go to my office. Uh, I'd go to my office, set my day, work out, take a shower in one of the locker rooms, be in my office, um, and then be there for 16 days, for 16 hours, uh, you know, if it was a big event day or whatever. Um, I think I lost this weight because, A, I'm not eating any candy anymore that's in my office, and, B, I'm not, I'm not eating, uh, and God bless them, Levy restaurants. I love their food, but I'm not snacking on Levy food all day long. And, you know, at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, I'd walk various concession stands and taste it, go to the various clubs, taste the food just to make sure that um, we're putting out a good quality product here. And so I think that I've lost the weight because I'm eating less, and I'm certainly not eating as much sugar as I was. Well, I think the weight that you've lost, I've gained during this uh, this pandemic, and I'm going to blame you for that. What is your favorite candy, your go-to candy, so that uh, maybe we can send you a box of that? I love licorice. I love red really? vines. I love black vines. I love chocolate licorice. I love Twizzlers. I love any kind of licorice that you could potentially imagine. That is my go-to candy. Or Swedish fish. I love, But that's like a licorice, too. So I love all that kind of licorice type stuff. I like it when it gets stale too, when it's a little hard to chew and you got to pull it. I'm not a soft licorice, fresh licorice kind of guy. I like it to be a little stale. So I open it up a bag and let it sit for a few days or so and let it get a little, a little ripe as they say. And it's a lot, it's a lot, I believe a lot nicer to chew. So are you a good and plenty kind of guy then? I love good and plenty because it's got that black licorice around that, around that uh, candy coated thing. There's a candy called Snaps. It's like a good and plenty type candy as well um, that uh, I think the American Licorice Company made it. It's got a soft, it's got a, it's got a candy thing around a, a little nib of uh, black licorice. So I love all licorice. Well, that's good. That, that's good to know. Now, one thing to be cautioning yourself on, I read recently that somebody ate too much black licorice and actually died from it because there is some chemical or whatever in the licorice that if you get too much of it in your body it can't process it and it actually causes this person to die well uh, thank you for bursting my bubble a and b if you send me a lot of black licorice i'll know that you now have an ulterior motive now <laughs> well we'll send you a mixture and then tell the people around you to make sure that you're limited as to how much you can have you got it uh lee one thing that uh, went on in the building that I happened to be down there for, there was a, I'm going to refer to it as a Zampala with uh, Jesse James. How high did your blood pressure go that night when uh, Jesse James did not listen to you and drove the machine and almost took out a section of the end boards at the arena? Well, let me tell you, there's two things there. First of all, I've never driven a Zamboni in my life because uh, I'm not a great car driver anyways. I've never driven a forklift in, in the venues I've worked in either because I don't trust myself getting on a Zamboni, nor do I trust myself getting uh, getting on a forklift. It's challenging enough for me to get into my car to just get me to work and get me to back. That said, I have, I have always, always had my radar up when, you know, people such as the Kings or anybody else with a idea for doing something on the ice um which i guess is going to drive more entertainment or it's going to be more fun for people you know so when that came out on the ice of course i was very concerned when the when the when when bailey would bring out his at uh, atv uh, four-wheeler on in the ice that that wrinkles my feathers as well so anytime you see any of those type of things done it always concerns me and when we first came out when you guys put the the zamboni rider seats on those zambonis you know 
I'm thinking now our drivers are going to be are going to be bothered by these guys and they're going to hit the boards or they're going to take somebody out that's trying to trying to get the uh, get the goals ready or things of that nature. So I'm a purebred. Get the Zamboni on the ice, get it off of the ice. And I will be honest with you. You know, in the very beginning, you know, we only used one Zamboni and then, you know, then they wanted to use two Zambonis. And I'm thinking that's just a recipe for disaster. If one goes wrong and a blade is off and it starts cutting a groove around the ice, you know, all right, you got a shot at least fixing that. But if another one has the same problem, then you're cutting grooves all over the ice and you may never get that game finished. Now, we, hopefully our machines don't do that and don't cause you those problems. Uh, Listen, it, you know what? When you talk about machinery and talk about ice, you know, you're always worried because ice is so fragile and, you know, the players, the players, you know, critique it, you know, listen, especially in a building that has very little time to maintain it. You know, and the funny thing is, you know, everybody would say, well, you know, that, that puck is bouncing around a lot today. And I said, well, you know, you got a, you got a hard inch ice surface and you got a two inch frozen rubber puck and you got a stick swinging at it. You don't think it's going to bounce every now and then? Oh no, it's hitting ruts. It's hitting this, it's hitting that. Listen, when they skate and they're in the 18th minute, of course there's going to be ruts. But everybody's an ice expert. Everybody they knows are. how to make it. Everybody knows how to maintain it. Everybody knows what it should be. But I will tell you this. I, you know, quick story. When I was working at the Forum, a guy by the name of Sam McMaster was the GM. Wayne Gretzky were playing there. And I got called up to Sam's office, and Wayne was up there and called me up there. And they said, you know, they said, listen, the ice is terrible here. We're having major issues here at the Forum. We need you to do something about it. We need you to give us some direction, give us some advice. Um, what do you have to say? And I said, well, you know, I'm a little surprised it took you this long to call me up here because you lost nine games at home in a row. So, you know, you know, it's never the stick. It's never the skates. It's never the puck. And it's never the player's ability. It's always the sheet of ice. It's funny how people uh, become experts. And when they when the NHL brought the hockey players in, asking them to grade out the ice, I'm like going, that's a, the biggest recipe for disaster there can be because both teams have to skate on the same sheet of ice. And the team could be the crappiest team in the world. They win five games. It's the greatest ice. They could be the best team in the world. They lose five games. And it's the worst sheet of ice. And it's the same sheet of ice for both teams. So exactly. it's, it's interesting. And then you talk about those venues in Canada or the cold weather cities that, that only have one one team playing in their buildings. Well, you know, Edmonton can have great ice and Toronto can or 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 uh, Calgary can have great ice. Why can't Stapleson have great ice? How about the fact that we do 250 events a year? We never get a chance to work on it. And, you know, you got 75 and sunny, you know, 300 days out of the year here. Come on. You have to take all these things into consideration. But people don't do that because everybody's an ice expert, as you know. Exactly. And it's something my dad used to get written up in the paper about how great the ice was uh, when he was the engineer. And as much as I love my dad and knew how talented he was, a lot of it had to do with that sheet of ice was in Minnesota, north of the Mason-Dixon line. And the Canadians loved it, but they skated on it. They didn't have the pressures that your building has. And if you turn Staples strictly into an ice rink, you could make that uh, same thing happen, except the business model wouldn't work out because you need all the events in the building. You are correct. And, and unlike your father, I've never been written up in any article or any publication praising myself or, or our team on a great sheet of 
advice. <laughs> well, we're going to have to work on that. Lee, one question I've got for you, because I've heard different stories. In 2014, when the Kings were down three to nothing in the first round of the playoffs, and they turned around and won the series, how close were you to pulling the plug on getting the ice out of the building? Well, the next day, we would have melted it the next day. You know, we, we don't, we weren't going to mess around. There's obviously once you're done, you're done. Nobody's going to call you up on the phone and saying, Hey, we'd like to do a neutral site Stanley cup game at, at Staples center. You still have the ice up. We were ready to go. We were ready to go. And I, and I will tell you that the two times that, that we had the opportunity to hoist the cup at Staples center, 2012 and 2014, 2014 was the most stressful because of a, of that start in 20 in 2012, you know, they were the eighth one in and we got in, you know, like the last few days of the season. No one expected anything. And then I think they went like 18 and three or or six or whatever they went that year. And it was a phenomenal run. But that last game against New Jersey, that that series, that Stanley Cup series, you know, they were up like six, one, six, two, six, three. I'm thinking with 10 minutes, 11 minutes, 12 minutes ago, please don't let the lights go off. Please don't let anything <laughs> go wrong with the board. Please don't let the glass break. We don't want to do anything to uh, halt the momentum going forward here. And then everybody looking at me because our operations team couldn't fix it. And then New Jersey comes back and wins seven, six or whatever. So that was my biggest stress factor there. Against the Rangers in 14, you know, that double overtime win, we were there. And, you know, I was looking around with people that stand where I stand, right? Right by where the Kings come out on the ice in between periods and the, uh, not in between periods, but to start the game. And, you know, I realized that that if New York scores, this building is going to be deflated. They're going to go back to New York for game six. They could get beat, come back for game seven, and who knows what happens. If the Kings score at any time in these double overtime, this building and this city is going to go crazy, and it's going to be so wild. Fortunately, uh, Alec Martinez scored in that double overtime, and I have never heard a building that loud in my entire life, including – you know, it rivaled, I guess if you could put them side by side, um, the last Laker championship um, when Kobe and Paul Gasol beat the Boston Celtics, I think in 2010. Um, and that was a very hard fought game as well. But I will tell you this, there was, you know, the first time, it was the first time in 2012 that the Kings have won the Stanley Cup in 45 years. And then to win it two years later um, was pretty damn exciting. Lee, you've been involved in the what used to be the IAAM and now the IAVM for quite a while. Can you tell us um, about your involvement with that organization, how important it is, and where do you see that organization and our industry going? Well, first, I'm a big fan of IAVM. Um, I was really involved, you know, early on in my career. I was on quite a few committees. I, I sat on the foundation. Um, I spoke on some panels. But as I've gotten older and I've gotten more involved in other things, it, it, was, it was tough for me to go to a lot of conferences. And I'll be honest with you, the conferences back when we used to go in our younger days um, and the trade shows and the trade show floor, as you well know, um, they were a lot of fun. I'm not saying they're not a lot of fun now, but it was different. It was different back in the late 80s and 90s and early 2000s than it really is now. Um, those trade shows were packed. You knew everybody. And you did business and you shopped. And I think that's one of the big things that has been tough for IAVM to recapture is, is how effective those trade show floors were and the camaraderie of everybody that used to participate in the trade shows and the trade show floors. I mean, we looked forward to the opening. We looked forward to walking around and drinking our beers and cocktails and talking to people such as yourself from the Zamboni company and shooting the shit with everybody else that, that had spent a tremendous amount of money out there. 
but you know, my generation got older, um, you know, we, things changed, you know, people working for municipalities, you know, didn't get the budgeting that will allow them to go to certain things. So the, the whole concept has changed. You know, I think they've done a great job under the leadership of Brad Main, um, who has obviously came from a venue management background. I think he's done a tremendous job there. Um, I, I, I rely on IAVM to this day to look at certain uh, product uh, evaluations, similar to what we just did at Microsoft Theater and Staples Center, where we were the first arena globally to get the GBAC accreditation, um, which is a sanitization and the cleaning accreditation, um, which I believe is gonna be a great asset in our toolbox when we go back and come back from the pandemic. So I, I still lean on them uh, um, heavily and I still read the publication and I, I still read everything that they send out. That said, it's changed. And now it's important for me to pass that torch to the young men and women professionals in our organization and that work with me and for me to get them involved, to get them involved in District 7, to get them involved on, on a national level as well. So I believe that there's always going to be a need for these associations. But you also have to balance that with, you know, every management firm out there has their own protocols and their own sort of associations. You've got ASM Global now, you've got Aramark, you've got Centerplate, you've got Legends, you've got Oakview Group. All of these people are vying for the attention of all the venues and to, to get them into coalitions and to allow them to adapt their certain protocols and their best practices. So there's a lot of competition out for that that we never really had back when, when I was in my 30s and 40s and, and early 50s. Well, and I think one of the things that I've found with it, and I think it's a generational thing, is that the the younger people don't socialize the way that they that our generations did, in that they don't value going to a conference and pressing the flesh and hanging with somebody and having a cocktail and having a cigar and just hanging out. They want to do it all via text or social media. And, and that's one of the things that we see in our industry uh, for the Zamboni company and the shows that we do is trade shows dying off because kids, the younger people just don't want to get involved like you did when you were starting out in the industry or in early in your career in the industry. A lot of truth to that. A lot of truth to that. You know, you've got the millennials, the Gen X, the Gen Z. You know, I look at myself as a trilennial. I'm 65, so that means I'm like 20-something three times over. <laughs> You're the age of my wife, sir, and that, that's a great age to be. We don't have much time. I'd love to do this a second time, but I do want to touch on one question for you, and then I want to have you talk a little bit about COVID to end, end the discussion because I appreciate your time, and I don't want to go over what we're doing. But you are a tequila aficionado, from what I recall. Can you please educate our listeners on some tequilas and what you would say would be a good one and what I think you referred to as mouthwash uh, for tequilas? Well, yes, I am. Uh, I've had quite a few uh, pops of tequila. But that said, um, you know, there's Blanco, there's Respado, and there's Anejo, and then there's Super Anejo. Um, you know, Blanco is aged less than three months. I think Respado's aged less than a year and Anejos are, are three years or more. Um, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to sipping tequilas by a gentleman by the name of Andy Camacho, who is very well known for Camacho's uh, Mexican food restaurants, had a concession stand at Staples Center and, and built a big food and beverage organization. He introduced me to uh, Cuervo uh, Reserva de la Familia. 
It's what Cuervo made for the family. And it was a sipping, wood-tasting Anejo, Super Anejo. I enjoyed that immensely, realized that, man, I could sip this all night. Then I got introduced into Don Julio 1942, which, by the way, is my go-to today. It is a smooth, buttery tequila. Um, I get a lot of those bottles in and around the holidays. And when I do a favor for somebody, they, uh, they seem to send me a bottle of Don Julio 42. And then you could move into the Don Julio's and then the, the Cuervo's or some of the Patrons, those type of things that you get at a bar for eight bucks a pop or 10 bucks a pop. That's what I consider mouthwash. Or you put those in margaritas. I'll never drink that. First of all, I never understood why anybody drinking tequila would want it in a margarita because, you know, the reason you drink is to get a little buzz. And so the more liquid you have to drink to get that buzz, the more uncomfortable that is. So I would sip tequila and it allowed me to get to the desired effect, smoke a cigar, and I'd be in heaven. That said, now there are quite a few Anejos out there. There is, uh, there is um, uh, Casa Dragones, that, that is a great tequila. There's uh, Casa Azul Ocho, which is a great tequila that could go, uh, it's in a black, long-gated bottle. It goes for about 450 bucks a shot at a, at, a, at a bar or a restaurant. You know, Don Julio is anywhere from 35 to 75 a shot, depending on where you go, Don Julio 42. Um, so there are a tremendous amount of more. There's, there's um, you know, uh, Evian 44 Reserva. So there is a plethora of tequilas out there. But now, as I've gotten older, I'm also into Pinot Noirs now. So, you know, I go to Los Olivos or I'll go up to Napa, get me a nice Pinot. So it's either a Pinot or it's a 42 in, in one hand or a Pinot in the other hand, never together. But uh, those are my go-dos right now. But I will tell you this, as I've gotten older and as I have a, a, a liquor cabinet in my garage that has multiple bottles of various tequilas, my big thing is there, hey, you don't need to buy me any more tequila. Give me some Uber credit now. That'll help me even going further. <laughs> that, that's pretty funny. Lee, could you touch a little bit on COVID and its impact on on your building, on your career, not so much a career, but on your workday. And where do you see it impacting the industry? And what is our industry going to be like going forward? Maybe it's 2021, 2022, uh, short term and then long term. Well, I, you know, and this is my opinion. This is not related to anything uh, AEG or Staples Center I work for. This is just one man's opinion who has followed this very closely. Um, I was uh, part of a, I, I can't tell you how many task forces I've been on. I used to joke that I need to create a task force just to oversee the task forces that I've been on and make sure that they follow task force protocol. It's been that many task forces. I firmly believe that, that, that first of all, we obviously had no plan from a, a national standpoint. There was no leadership, in my opinion, from the get-go when this started. So quite frankly, we're really not the United States as it relates to a COVID plan where the United States, each state is his own country, in my opinion. You have 50 different states here. So each state has been tasked with coming up with their own protocols, their own guidelines, and their own implementation of how they're going to do their roadmaps to recovery. Um, so I believe that, that, and we were very instrumental in this in the very beginning. I believe first that, that health agencies needed to stem the curve, you know, stop the infection rate, and flatten that curve. 
I felt that they needed to protect the healthcare workers, the frontline healthcare workers. And I believe that they needed to keep the hospitals um, from being overrun by COVID cases. We've gotten to the point where we've done that to a certain extent, although we are seeing spikes and surges now, and a lot of us are concerned moving into the winter right now, what, what's gonna happen. So I'm a firm believer that, that a venue needs to have its own protocols, its A to Z protocols. You need to marry those up and educate your county health or your state health or your city health with your protocols because they're really not concerned about that. And our industry was the first to close, it's going to be the last to fully open up, to be honest with you. And so you need to marry those guidelines with county health guidelines. You need to help educate county health or state health with your guidelines because they really don't know how venues run. Like I said, they're more closely tied to protecting the healthcare workers, flattening the curve, making sure we can do contact tracing and making sure we're developing therapies and vaccines. So once you get those two things taken care of, I think you need to work with your leagues and the teams of playing your venues and get their protocols, their A to C protocols. And then you marry all three of those up and you have one document that allows you to actually operate. Um, and hopefully as a venue, you've thought about everything and then you just adapt a few bullet points from the county, state or city and some bullet points from the leagues as it relates to certain things that you need to do to operate. So where does that leave us? Well, I can tell you pretty much every venue does have their own protocols right now. And I can tell you that every city and state and county has their own roadmaps to reopening. Problem is, it's they're all over the board. You know, you could be in Dallas, Texas last night for the Cowboys game and have 26,000 people, close to 26,000 people. You can go to SoFi Stadium next week for a Rams game and have zero people. So it is different in every state, every county and every city moving forward. I don't know when that's ever gonna be standardized or if it's gonna be standardized as we move forward. Because again, there's been, in my opinion, very, very, very little leadership from the top. And by the top, I mean our federal government. So that's a big issue. So some leagues are gonna open up with fans. Some are gonna open up without fans. We're in the state of California where we can have sporting events without fans, but we can't have them with fans yet. And I'm hoping that that changes because as we continue to educate LA, LA Public County Health, and the county of LA that we show them that we could do this um, safely and that we could add additional percentages to get back to where we were. Do I believe that we're ever gonna be back to where we were on March 11th, March 12th? No, we weren't back to normal after 9-11 either. And I'm not saying that in a negative basis, on a negative, on a negative front, I'm saying that things are gonna be different. We're gonna be smarter. We're gonna be more digitalized. We're gonna be more digitalized as it relates to ticketing, as it relates to mobile ordering of food. The packaging of your food and beverage is gonna change. The way you park your cars is gonna change. The way you enter the venues are gonna change. So when I say we're never gonna be the same as it was you know, March 12th, I believe it can be better. I believe we're gonna re-enhance or rethink the fan experience moving forward and make it better. Now that said, are we gonna have fans chomping at the bit to come back? I don't know. You know, I'm a huge proponent of you can't replace the live experience. You can't replace the smells, the sights, the sounds of the live experience. You can't replace being with your friends at a sporting event or a concert. You can't replace being with your kids or your family at a sporting event or a concert. Um, but I don't know. You know, I don't know if people are gonna come back in droves. Um, you know, they're certainly gonna be looking at how you sanitize a venue uh, moving forward. You know, we're gonna need to make sure, and, and some people have coined the term, it, you know, a lot of this is theater hygiene because it is. The more we know about the virus and the pandemic, the more we know how you can get it. And a lot of it, and most of the 
documentation now is airborne and not on surfaces and things of that nature. But you coming to Staples Center are going to want to see more people out there sanitizing the places that you touch, that you frequent. So we've gone contactless. We're going to be cashless. We've redone our POS systems. We've taken out flush valves. We've taken out faucets. We've taken out paper towel dispensers. Everything that you had to touch before, you no longer need to do that now. And that's given us more ammunition in our, in our, in our tool chest that allow us to educate the public coming back. So do I believe it's gonna be 100% back to normal? I do not. I believe we need to continue to work with the state, the county and our cities, our teams and our leagues to educate everybody. And I need to believe we need to go as contactless, as touchless moving forward. And then will we be ready to host mass gatherings again and hope that men and women have not been laid off of work for six to 12 to 18 months and they have that discretionary income to come back. Because let's be realistic, if you're, work, if you're a restaurant worker or an owner of a restaurant per se, you, you've had some tough times the last eight months. You know, opening, closing, outdoor only, 25% indoor, trying to get your workforce back to work because they've been on a stimulus package or unemployment making more money than they would have if they were working for you and not jeopardizing their health. So I think there are going to be bigger hurdles for us to jump. I don't think it's going to be we're turning on a light switch and everybody's going to be back there all at once. I think we're going to have to win them back. And I believe we can do that by changing the way that we create the fan experience moving forward. One other saying that I like to um, repeat is the only constant in life is change. And I think that uh, you talked about 9-11 and things definitely changed. You, t you can refer to uh, out here, uh, Rodney King, because it's similar to what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd uh, in that that created a change of things. And it, it's going to be interesting to see where our industry goes. And I call it our industry because we're supplying to it. You guys are on the front line uh, dealing with it. And I just hope that it continues to be the industry that uh, you and I have enjoyed in our careers. I do too. And listen, I, I try to tell people that, you know, I, I always sign off everything that I do with, you know, stay safe, stay healthy and stay positive. And lately I've said, please go out and vote because who knows what's going to happen. You know, Staples Center is a polling site. I'm not sure when you're going to hear this, but um, we're a polling site beginning the 24th of October through the 3rd of, um, of November. And I'm quite concerned about what could potentially happen. Listen, we just had the Laker championship celebration with 1,000 to 2,000 people out in the streets of Los Angeles, you know, a week ago Sunday night. And it was the worst one I've ever seen. And they didn't even play at home. So I'm just hoping that people stay at home, they mail in their ballots, or if they want to come down and vote, they do it respectfully and responsibly and, and, and let people vote. And let's get through this and let's figure it out. But I do believe this industry is in for quite a bit of change, um, not only from a sports standpoint, but from a concert standpoint. And I believe that um, we will be better coming out of this. We will be smarter coming out of this. When that is, Doug, I don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's as, as, you know, I'm telling you and everybody who is at least, in my opinion, educated, it's going to be driven by the science. It's going to be driven by the data. You know, when people say, hey, we had 25,000 people at the Cowboy game last night, went off without a hitch, everybody wore masks, which we all know that's not true, and everybody's physically distanced, which we all know that's not all true. You don't really know if an event like that was successful until two to 14 days later if you figure out if you've had any, any outbreaks or any infections or you've got a contact trace, you know. So there are so many things out there 
that people just don't take into consideration or that they think that all we got to do is test them, we can open our doors again, or we take their temperature. You know, a lot of that is just theater. You know, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have to really think about how we reopen up safely and then we bring people back again. And you know what? I've been standing in the corner where I stand um, for 21 years now at Staples Center. When we do come back, I will be in that corner. But will I be shaking 300 people's hand a night? I highly doubt that. Will I be hugging everybody who walks by me? I highly doubt that. Will I have a little bottle of Purell or hand sanitizer in my pocket? <laughs> I believe I will. And it's going to be a little different. You know, buffets will be different. Packaging the food will be different. Coming into the venue will be different. You know, when somebody sneezes, you're going to look around and think, uh oh, you know, you're going to, you're just going to be more in tune and you're going to want to see that venues are taking this seriously and sanitizing, sanitizing. And then I believe to end this, this COVID com conversation, we're going to have to educate, educate, and educate, and especially educate those fans that it is safe for them to come back. Well, Lee, I didn't get to all my questions. I'm hoping that you'll have some time. We can do this again. I, I truly want to thank you for your time uh, that you spent with me today. It's been very enlightening, and I am hopeful that we can get our industry back to uh, back to operational again so that I can see you standing down watching the Kings uh, maybe lifting the Stanley Cup up again. I hope for the same thing. And listen, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed talking to you. Um, and if you want to do this again, please feel free to let me know. It's not like I got anywhere to be right now. <laughs> Great. We want to thank everyone for listening in to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts podcast. Have a question for one of our experts or an idea for a future episode? Please email your questions or request to info at Zamboni.com. For more information and additional podcast episodes, please visit Zamboni.com forward slash podcast or search Ask the Zamboni Experts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. This is Doug Peters wishing you an ice day. <laughs>